Once again, my name is Jeff, one of the elders here at the church. I'm glad you've come to be with us today. Uh, This is Kyle Bafia. He is our children's and student director. He's also a deacon of the church. He's on staff, um, and uh, he's a dear friend of mine, and I'm grateful for how he serves this church today. He's going to be preaching for us, so I thought I would pray for him uh, as we begin our time. So if you would, please uh, join me. Father, thank you so much for Kyle. Thank you for who you've made him and how he loves this church, how he loves you. And I'm grateful, Father, for uh, how he pours himself out. I'm grateful for um, the man that he is and the example that he is to our students and our children, as well as to all of us as his brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray, Lord, today, Lord, that you give us an understanding for the word that you prepared through him and that you uh, allowed us to understand more about your son, Jesus, and who we can be as a church. I pray that we, we come with um, ready hearts to worship you as you are worthy of it. Lord, we love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go. Well, good morning. We are going to be on page 967 in the Church Bibles, if you want to meet me there. We're also going to be in uh, chapter 3, verses 14 through 22 for this last letter as we close out our series on the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. And as we come to the close of our series in this uh, book of Revelation, I think it would be helpful to kind of summarize where we've been. I think it bears repeating a few key things about this series. And the first thing that we should really know is that these letters are from a loving Messiah to a church that is afflicted from the outside by the world in various conditions, but also from the inside by the sin that clings to all of us. And in nearly every case, we find that Christ has spoken of things that should be commended for each church, as well as things that need to be corrected for each church. And he exhorts them when they fall short. Second is that the qualifications of Jesus to carry out this role in rebuking and exhorting the churches is unquestioned in every single instance by virtue of who he is as the Messiah, as our Savior, as the second person of the Trinity. Because in Ephesus, he intimately knows and cares for his church. In Smyrna, he has proven himself over death itself. In Pergamum and Thyatira, his word is unstoppable and unerring. In Sardis and Philadelphia, he is the fullness of deity and the fulfillment of prophecy. And finally, we find that in each and every instance, there is a promise held out to those that would endure in every single church. And while this morning for the church in Laodicea, we find no commendation, we do find encouragement and that promise still remains. They were a church that had some issues. They were a church that finds itself at the end of all things, however, because of the promise of God at the center, at the very throne of God that they are beckoned to and that we are beckoned to as children to be seated with our Savior. And I hope that our time together in Revelation has done a few things. I hope that it has drawn us together. It has unified us in spirit. I hope that it has pushed us out into mission, and I hope that it has united us as the family of God. And now as we come to Laodicea, I want you to understand the condition of this struggling church. And what they really lacked was this sense of self-awareness, because I think at various points in our lives, we've all been people who didn't really have it all figured out. I don't know if you guys have ever had a mentor or a younger teacher that maybe you had when you were in second or third grade that you meet later in life. Maybe they were younger and just graduated college. It was their first time teaching through the curriculum. And it seemed fine from the outside, and it seemed like they had a pretty good handle on it. But then when you talk to them, you realize that they were self-aware of the fact that they were flying by the seat of their pants the entire time, had no idea what was going on, and were just hoping that nobody else noticed. Laodicea had the opposite problem, where even though they were wretched, pitiable, poor, naked, and destitute, they had no clue. They were blind to the fact that they desperately needed a Messiah. And this letter is Jesus calling this church back to recognize just how blind they are 
and to call them back to right behavior and right relationship with him. I think it's also contextually relevant to mention that Laodicea was a thriving economic center, so then the overblown self, self, sense of self-righteousness paired with this thriving um, sort of ability to be self-reliant can kind of be a mirror for the American church, can kind of be a mirror for the fact that we also can sometimes substitute financial independence for spiritual independence, something that Christ addresses here in this letter. So I pray that we would be able to live a life that is quick to repent, quick to hope, and slow to be misled either by the stories that we are told or the stories that we tell ourselves. So if you would pray with me and then uh, meet me in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 for the corporate reading of God's word after the prayer. Uh, go before the Father. Uh, Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this church. Thank you for this community that you are building us into. God, I pray that we would not be deceived by ourselves. We would not be deceived by our own press, that we wouldn't buy our own propaganda, but that we would look to you as the arbiter of truth. We would look to you as a faithful witness, the words of the Amen, that we would understand that in you, you cannot be deceived and that we can be led into truth because of this. Father, thank you for this morning and for these people and your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you would stand for me for the corporate reading of God's word, we'll begin in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And John writes, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe seated. So understanding the rebuke to Laodicea as it does with other churches, comes from understanding the person and nature of Jesus Christ. We've done this for every letter, and we're not going to stop now just because the family guy's up here. And as we are exploring the rebuke to these churches, I hope that we have been spurred on to a greater affection as we understand that Jesus is not just our Lord and our Savior, but also our satisfaction. This book is not idly titled Revelation because it sounds cool, because it looked good on the printing press, but because it should be revelatory of the character of Jesus Christ. And as we have seen him in Revelation is as he truly is and will be at his second coming. That he is the one who has the sword of truth in his mouth, the very word and will of the triune God. And like the other six letters, this letter begins with a detailed and unique descriptor that qualifies him to rebuke and encourage and call the churches. So first we find that Christ is... The Amen, and his words are the words of the Amen. And for those of you who haven't taken a Semitic language course, which I assume would be nobody because no one here speaks Hebrew as far as I'm aware. If you do, come talk to me. I would love to learn more. Um, but this Semitic word, Amen, means indeed or truly, but literally and more accurately, it is used to mean this is the truth. 
So not only do the words of Christ deserve a hearty amen, not only should we be able to bank our life on it, but also we should understand that Christ as being the amen is also that which verifies the promises of God, that in his person he is the long-awaited for Messiah, he is the inheritance of Abraham, he is what God has been working out through all of salvific history. It comes to a pinnacle in the person and work and gospel of Jesus Christ. But Christ is not just the amen. He's also a faithful and true witness. So it's significant that we're not only approaching Christ as the words of the amen, not only that his words are true, but also that they are accurate. Because it's one thing as a witness to speak the truth as you understand it. It's another thing to also speak the word faithfully and true. We live in a world that is just riddled with a corrupt judicial system that is riddled with people who don't know the whole truth and therefore can't speak the truth. But in Christ, we find that he is a true witness in the sense that he is able to accurately report to the Father who judges the hearts of men our condition as he sees it and he sees fit. But this terrifying truth that Christ truly knows us as we are and is therefore able to share with the Father what our sins are is also beautifully, encouragingly, the witness of God to us. In Christ, we have a witness of what we should be in our fallen humanity as he has came and lived a life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died as we confess every week through our communion reading. And we understand that Christ is the perfect revelation, a faithful and true witness, not just of us to the Father, but also of the Father to us so we can understand who and what God truly is. He's not just a faithful and true witness. He's not just the amen, but we learn that Christ is the beginning of creation. And this is not the beginning in the sense that he was the first thing that God did. He was not the sense that God sort of made Jesus as this sort of holy super being and then sent him out to do the rest of things. But it is the sense of the beginning as a source or a fountainhead. It's the idea that before Jesus, there was nothing, and without Jesus, nothing comes after. That word beginning there is the Greek word arche or archon, and it conveys this idea of headship, of the ruler of a country, of the source, of the beginning of all things that everything flows out of afterwards. Um, this is significant because in Paul's letter to the Colossians in chapter 4, they were dealing with the same kind of Christological, this idea about Jesus. They had that same sort of problem that was prevalent there at Colossae, but they also commanded that this letter would be read out to the Laodiceans. You can read more about that in Colossians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. So all of these things, being the amen, a faithful and true witness, and the supreme source and sovereign over God's creation, is the means and reason by which he can call this church out of something that is less than himself. Because while he speaks to a church that is wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked, he, on the other hand, is majestic, rich, right, and regal. He's able to call his church to be rich and clothed and see the world rightly because he is the means by which they are able to do all of these things. He says that, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And it's relevant here that Laodicea is not commended for any notable achievement at all in the letter, and instead Jesus comes out of the gate saying, hey, you guys are kind of worthless, I'm not going to lie to you. And I should probably let you in on some geography to help you make more sense of this concept that Laodicea was dealing with because for all their wealth and their money, they really couldn't figure out their water system. 
they had this sort of old dilapidated aqueduct system that carried in water from a long way away and it picked up a lot of impurities along the way and that stood in stark contrast to the cities of Colossae and Hierapolis, both of which were somewhat famous for their water in one way or another but in very different senses. So Colossae sort of sat at this foot of a mountain and this cold, clear sort of mountain spring snow runoff came down and it watered the city with this cold, clear, refreshing water that was a good thing on a hot day. On the other end of the spectrum, Hierapolis didn't have any notable drinking water necessarily, but what it did have were these incredible geothermal hot springs that were really rich in this sort of calcium carbonate material, which meant that it wouldn't go through aqueducts well, it would clog the pipes, and you wouldn't want to drink it, but it was incredible to take a spot in. So while it might not be used for drinking, and while you might not use the water at Colossae for bathing, both of them had either rejuvenating or refreshing purposes. Meanwhile, Laodicea kind of had the water that if you smelled it coming out of its happier friend's house, you'd ask for like a Dasani or an Ice Mountain or like some other like Kroger brand bottled water, anything but whatever's coming out of that tap. So then, what I'm trying to get at here is that this passage does not mean what maybe you've heard it preached as before, that Christ would either prefer that you be entirely on fire and hot for him and love the gospel, or that you would be completely averse and cold towards him and that you would not cloud the idea of what the world thought of the church. What Christ is not doing here is kicking people out of the kingdom that require his help. He is not so ignorant to the state of the church to know that they are sinners in need of grace. And I want to be very clear here that Jesus is not telling people that he would rather you be spiritually dead than spiritually uncertain. Remember who we're talking about here. This is the Jesus who came to the synagogue in his hometown and preached that he had come to proclaim the good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, the oppressed, and bring sight to the blind. He was coming to give people not what they should have, but what they didn't have, what they needed, what they maybe would have wanted in the first place but didn't know how to attain it. When he was praying for his disciples in Gethsemane, when he was asking that they would stay awake and stay vigilant and pray for him, when they fell asleep, he did not twiddle his thumbs before the Father and think, oh, what a bunch of useless disciples, but instead came to the Father and prayed for him and said that he had not lost one of the ones that he had given him, and that was by his means to glorify the Father. He protects and keeps his church. This is not a Messiah that gives up on his people to move on and find people that are more closely associated with what his idea of an image bearer should be, but instead he bears with sinners and transforms them into sons and daughters. And this carries through the Old Testament. We don't see God abandon Abraham when he abandons his wife Sarah in Egypt. We don't see God discard Jacob when he deceives his family and takes on multiple wives and starts a whole line of stress and difficulty. We don't see God forget Moses or David or Israel when they fall into patterns of disobedient living. Instead, he calls them to repentance and he continues to journey with them towards a better country. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Christ goes to pray for the disciples that fell asleep on him, he did not lament their pitiable nature, hoping that they would be better, but instead prayed with great concern for them before the Father. And what I want us to be sure of is that Christ does not kick people out of his church with the admonition that he would prefer someone who really, really hated him as opposed to someone who was spiritually uncertain. What Jesus is trying to communicate here is that his body, the church, should be useful for the community that they are irrigating. If he is living water, then so too should we, and we should be living with a purpose that is pleasant and attractive to the community that we live in. 
It should be in step with the nature of Christ that his rejuvenating and refreshing ministry to the world flows through us. And as the hands and feet of Jesus, we should be able to say confidently and clearly that we offer the same hope, the same love, the same healing that Jesus offers because we can't boast in anything else. We don't get it from any other source. And it is because of this, because Laodicea offers no evidence in their character or their works that have been transformed by Christ that he threatens to spit them out of his mouth, not for the fact that they are weak and pitiable, but because they have been not transformed at all in the first place. Reminds me of this time when I was out hiking on the West Coast and I was going through this really long, dry stretch in the desert and I came to the end of this 15-mile stretch and the only water for the next 10 miles came out of like, sort of like this rusty, dilapidated cattle trough that had algae growing on top and there was a bunch of sort of different like dead animals and dead insects laying in the bottom and I thought, well, this is about as good as I'm going to get for a while, so I guess I'll grin and bear it, but it tasted awful and I really didn't take that much in and it was no good to me because it was revolting. It was that same kind of water that they would have had at Laodicea. So you can imagine my joy when I came 10 miles later and found something that was clear and flowing out of a spring and was tapped and was pure and was the exact opposite of what I had had before. We should be that kind of water. We should be that kind of source and that font of Christ's character that is different than the world and that they would be happy to see. And as we think about what it looks like for us to live this out in community, I would ask us, are we actively searching to be rejuvenating or refreshing to those around us? Because you might be in one camp or the other, and you might function in one role differently than in some others, but it's worth asking if you are cold, clear water for people who need the gospel, who are comforting them and refreshing them and sustaining them, or maybe you're a little bit more like the water from Hierapolis. Maybe the work that you do in ministry looks a little bit more like a hot spring, where when you get in, it's not really comfortable at first, but it's beneficial for sweating out all the gunk and grime that you've picked up along the way. Are you actively searching to be rejuvenating or refreshing to those around you? Maybe talk about in your community groups. Jesus goes on and says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, I mentioned before that Laodicea was a church that was pretty well-to-do. It was a financial hotspot. It was along this really great trade route, but they also had some industries that they were probably pretty proud of in a civic national kind of sense. First, they had a medical school that was sort of known as this optometry hotspot where they produced ointments and salves that were sort of made to help with your eyesight, made to help with illnesses that sort of came in your ocular regions. And they were also known for having a really good textile industry. They had this rich black sheep's wool that was known far and wide as really high quality. So before Versace and Louis and Gucci, there was Laodicea. It's how you knew that your friends were doing well, got a promotion. It's like, really, that's Laodicea, and that's super nice. Where did you get that? How did they afford that? Um, it, was, it, it was good stuff. It was fantastic product that they were putting out there, and it helped them to be really financially independent to the point where when the city was really damaged and almost leveled by an earthquake, they didn't need Rome's help to rebuild the city. And that was unique among the seven churches that we had letters to because they were so inundated with Roman culture because they were on the hook in a way for a debt that they had to Rome to help them with their financial independence. Laodicea, on the other hand, was completely financially independent, but the problem was is that they had mistaken their financial security for their eternal security. Because you can't tithe your way into heaven and you can't bribe your way past the pearly gates. So Jesus rebukes this church for valuing their physical and economic comfort at the expense of their spiritual dependence on God. They are wretched and pitiable because the illness that they have that afflicts them can't be cured by anything that comes out of their bottles or vials. 
They are poor because for all the money in the world, they can't buy their way into heaven. They can't buy the atonement that they so desperately need that can only be purchased through Christ's sacrifice. And they are blind because while they might have a decent optometry school, they are still unable to see rightly without the light of the gospel. Ultimately, their sickness is sin and the cure is not snake oil but lamb's blood. And while they may have rich textiles and fabrics to make their garments, their spiritual reality and sinfulness is completely exposed and laid bare before the Father that judges hearts of men. So those garments are compared in stark contrast to the white garments that Christ would provide them with, that they would be clothed in his righteousness instead of their best attempt to dress up their poverty as luxury. They would find that they always would consistently fall short in the areas that they hoped their material wealth would provide them when they were looking for a spiritual salvation. And Jesus' prescription for this is not to lean on their own resources, but instead he says that I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So what Jesus offers to them as an alternative is his riches instead of theirs, his garments instead of theirs, his healing instead of theirs because his gold is tested, his garments stand in stark contrast to theirs and his medicine is good not just for the body but for the soul. He sees the needs that they themselves don't know they have and he is ready and able to meet every single one. He sees the needs that you have and don't know you need, and he stands ready to meet every single one. And this has been the mode that God has been operating in since the Old Testament. He knows the state that we're in, and how often have you found that whatever you thought you needed, whatever you thought you needed to be, you just kind of came up short. I know that I've wanted to be a better son than I am, but I'm still ill-tempered and short when days get a little bit long. I've wanted to be a better church member, but I have forgotten to pray when I should have, when there are things that are worthy to be praying about. And I fall so short of my standard as a Christian that I am sure that I wouldn't be able to list it all here today if I tried. But what Christ offers us is his riches, his garments, his healing. We don't do it on our account, but we wait for Christ to provide us with what we need. And maybe the sin that you experience isn't a sin of something that you do. Maybe it's something that you know that you should, that you know that you should do, but you don't do. And I would encourage you to look at Isaiah 55 at some point through the week because the standing offer of God is that if you need these things that I have, I am offering them to you without price. And why does he offer this to us? He writes in verse 19 that those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. And in this letter that's devoid of any commendation, we find that it is not without encouragement. And this is one that I probably need to hear as much as anyone else does, and that is that our attitude around repentance is rank with the idea of performative Christianity. It's rank with this idea that we are going to be able to do enough, that if we just look sad enough before God, that that is going to be what gets us into heaven. But I would remind you that while conviction and contrition are the beginning of the process of repentance, it isn't where you want to stay. Conviction and contrition are befitting of a sinner at the beginning, but it shouldn't be the place of a son or a daughter at the end of their journey of repentance. So when we repent, we turn again from darkness to light, from death to life. And when you repent, don't go dragging your feet, but go zealously, even if you, like Laodicea, have nothing worthy to boast of in the first place. Go as someone who has lost everything, but is instead being offered heaven with the world thrown in at the moment of your restoration to God and Christ. The journey of repentance is nothing less than that. 
And I don't know everything about everyone sitting out there today. Maybe you have a criminal record that's not going to be expunged anytime soon. Maybe the state is going to hold you to that. But God is intent on remembering to forget our sins. I'll say that one more time. God is intent on remembering to forget our sins. He's not going to throw it back up at you. He's not going to make you pay it off in a future life because the balance of your sin has been paid and the checks that Christ writes don't bounce. But don't just remember this for yourself. Don't just remember this for your own spiritual good or well-being, but do it also for those that are around you. If you are a mentor to younger Christians in the pews, if you are able to have any kind of influence in your family or in your coworkers' lives, remember that if they have something that has been weighing them down on account of sin, but it has been confessed and forgiven, lift them back up with the fact that we go to a God zealous in repentance because he is zealous to forgive us. We should be zealous to repent because the one who hears our repentance is zealous in love to forgive us. Christ goes on and say, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And again, this is another one of those iconic passages that can be sort of twisted a little bit out of context because it's used in an evangelistic sense. It's used in this idea of like, oh, if you don't know who Jesus is and you've never heard of him and you haven't accepted him, he is knocking at the door of your heart and he just wants to be let in. Would you please let him in and you would be saved? But we need to remember that this is a letter that is not written to a group of non-believers that have no idea of what the gospel is, even though they might act like it. It is written to a church that is familiar with Jesus but has decided to shut him out of the way that they live their lives and the way that they live their ministry. And just like our repentance, we feel like once we have fallen short, once we have brought ourselves out of the fellowship of Christ, it can be really hard to let him back in. That he would not be willing to come into someone who has not known what they were supposed to do or not acted like they had known. But Christ makes it obvious that if anyone opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And this isn't to say that the evangelistic possibility in this verse is completely absent. It should never be the case that we would dismiss the words of Scripture as able and effective to bring about the renovation of the heart in those who would hear it. But it's also true that we should continue to read Scripture as we have been for this entire series in its original context in light of what it would mean to its original hearers. God is calling his church to fellowship with him and God is calling his church to intimacy with him, a familiarity that only comes through trust, dependence, and obedience. And if we continue in trust and dependence and obedience, he writes this, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So as we come to this familiar close of Christ saying to him who conquers, to him who overcomes, we find this stunning promise that God gives a church that has nothing going for it at the beginning, that they are going to be at the end in the center of everything, seated on the throne with Christ. That they would be seated with him on his throne forever. God does not ignore sin or disobedience, but neither does he disdain the repentant. God does not cast out the struggling, but neither does he find no pity for the wretched. Instead, he offers them grace, life, riches, and glory on his account to the church that we would think nothing of. Christ offers everything. A seat not only at the table in fellowship for dinner, but also on the throne in glory. So we stand here at the close of a series about seven letters to seven churches from a long way away and a long time ago. And as we think back about what we should know about ourselves and about Christ, I think the message is pretty clear and I've got a few things. So here's like your good like Baptist three-point sermon section. Um, the first thing is that he is enthroned forever in glory. And we spend a lot of time, as we should, understanding who exactly it is that is speaking to the churches 
And we should understand rightly that Jesus is not only our Lord and our Savior, but in glory, he should also be our satisfaction as well. Not just our Lord and our Savior, but our satisfaction as well, because he reigns forever in glory. And from glory, he even cares for his churches. He knows them by name, he knows their struggles and their triumphs, and he calls them to greater life in him. But finally, and maybe most beautifully, is that all these letters are introduced with a statement about who Christ is. And what that points us back to is that he saves us out of the abundance of his glory. God saves us from himself with no other motivation. He is good, and because of that, he saves us. It's not the other way around. He is good, and because of that, he saves us. It's not that he saves us, and therefore he's good because he's done us a favor. But it's out of his goodness that he calls us out of our troubles and shortfalls because they are secondary in nature to the importance of God's glory. Our obedience and even our very salvation is the means by which we participate in that glorification because it is tied directly to the holiness of God. And that is why that salvation that we have from Christ is so assured. It's because it's tied directly to his holiness and therefore his character. It's sure because as the Father glorifies the Son and the Son glorifies the Father and they glorify each other in the Spirit, that is where Jesus calls us to himself from. And that stance is to be trusted forever. He's not going to go back on it. He's not going to fake you out with something else. He will not go back on his former promises or abandon us because it is founded in his holiness and his character. That he is good and therefore he saves us. Not that he is good in his saving of us. So in bringing his people to repentance and obedience to himself, God is not acting on a whim, but it is tied directly to his character, which is consistent that it would be for his glory first and our good second. So as we find the reigning Lord Jesus Christ writing to churches that are struggling, that are destitute, that are in desperate need of his care and his attention, we find that he is just as careful and attentive to us today. This is good news, church. This is good news that we have a Savior that knows us, that cares for us, that pursues us, that doesn't leave us out in the dark and doesn't spit us out just because our affections are lukewarm, but instead he moves us to be of some good use. I hope this series has meant as much to you as it has to me as we've seen Christ revealed in glory to those who are anything but glorious. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your people and your church. God, I pray that we would continue to be people who know you, who trust you, who love you, who understand completely and fully that you are the amen, a faithful and true witness, that you are the beginning of creation, but also the end of it. You are the purpose and our satisfaction that we have in salvation. I pray that you would help us to be more aware of that every day. In Jesus' name, amen.